Welcome to the Equipping Podcast. My name is Karen Henson, and I'm here with my co-host, Nathan Wagnon. Hello. <laughs> you sounded like Smokey the Bear or something. Hello. Hello. So glad you're here. Perfect. Well, we're going to continue our conversation with Scott Harrell on the Trinity. So I hope you all enjoy. I know one of the things that was really helpful for me, and a lot of times uh, this is the way doctrine really gets clarified for people, is other people start to say things that are not true. It's like, well, how do we know this is this? Well, we know this is this. We know it's not that over there. And we know it's not that. And in that process of knowing that it's not that, the doctrine gets clarified. And so walk us through some of the early Christian heresies in regard to the Trinity what they were, and how they got clarified. Well, that's good, uh, because those heresies of old are alive and well today, yeah. all around yeah, us, right. really. Well, one group we called the Ebionites, from the word poor, they were kind of uh, the extremely ascetic uh, uh, Jewish people, like the Qumran community, the Essenic community. They, there weren't many of them. We don't know much about them, but with the destruction of Jerusalem and Israel, some of them fled to the upper Nile in Egypt. And they lived in very humble circumstances. Their position was that Jesus is like John the Baptist. He's not God. Uh, he probably didn't rise from the dead. He's just a prophet to be listened to. Not un- unlike what Islam says today, mm-hmm. uh, and, and what some liberation theologians and others said that yeah. make him a, a great hero, martyr, teacher, and yeah, all the rest. Yeah. Then there was another group on the other side. If those are the Jewish ones that rejected Jesus. There are others who said, uh, from the from the Greco-Roman world, well, he's like a phantom. He's he's a kind of emanation of God. They're called Docetus. It's kind of Gnosticism. That is, he he uh, he walked on the sand. Common illustration, but he left no foot footsteps. Lots of stories, Gnostic gospels, and things like that, that come out with all of this. Real quickly, I'm going to interrupt you. Um, help us understand where did uh, I think you mentioned Ebion means poor. Yeah, yes, but talk to us about where it was. Dokeo, I think, is the word, and and talk to us about well, to appear. Yeah, yes. to appear yeah. is that. But talk to us about. Give us a brief. What is Gnosticism? Well, not that's that's a big one. Gnosticism was one of the controlling paradigms of kind of the Platonic world of gods and emanations and all of that. Uh, but Docetism was, as every major religion does today, trying to appropriate Jesus and stick him into their own system. Mm. So for them, Jesus was was like some of their other gods. He was a power, a very wonderful power, but he wasn't really human because the, the world we live in for them was considered evil. Mm. And so he couldn't be human to be really God. Mm. And yet not God quite as the high God for them was almost impersonal. So there were a lot of Gnostic heresies that came about in the second and third centuries, mm-hmm. and those were roundly rejected by Christian faith as well. Yeah. How do we know about these people? What are some of the sources that... Well, that, very good. Yes. Uh, actually, because the church fathers we do listen to, Irenaeus and others, were writing mm-hmm. against Marcion and other so-called uh, heretics, what we call heretics today. Mm-hmm. They were all trying to figure it out, but some were being more faithful to the Bible than others. But yeah. we know mainly about these. We have some of their writings, but through what other Christian fathers have said about them. So we know the, yeah, from, from Irenaeus, the, the Ebionites were kind of the Jewish sect that denied the deity of Jesus. 
And the Gnostics were the ones who everybody else that denied the humanity of of Jesus. We know a lot, a lot more right? about yes, and we know yeah. a lot more about that latter category yeah. than, than the Ebionites yeah. themselves. Yeah, Irenaeus wasn't he wasn't he didn't have a short pin on those guys. No, no. <laughs> certainly not on the Gnostics. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I was reading Irenaeus the other day in page after page you after were. page after page. Yeah. So and anyway, you guys tell what I do in my spare time. Okay. Hey, also, Casual <laughs> review. So you have the Ebionites. Yes. And the, and the Docetists. And uh, what, what else was out there? Well, Ebionites, Jesus is just a man. Docetists, no, he's God. He's not man. Mm-hmm. So it got a little more sophisticated. There's what's called adoptionism, various forms of it. But that is that Jesus was a really good prophet, good man, and God adopted him as his son or Lord, just a normal person like you and I. But then whether it be at the baptism or whether it be at the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved son, listen to him, Mm -hmm. Peter, James, and John, or whether at the resurrection, they wanted to make him divine in some sense. But he didn't start out as an incarnation. He was one who was infused with the presence of God such that God adopted him. Now, that kind of theology is around quite a lot yep. today. Yeah, well. totally. Yeah, I was actually fairly recently had a conversation with someone who was an adoptionist. Uh, people don't know what to call it. And they, sure, a lot of times they don't sure. even know that there's a history there. But um, around what, what are the timetables of these? I know Ebionism was very early. Docetism was very early. Around what time did, did adoptionism start to well, you're dealing with you're dealing with a, a Roman Empire where Christianity was uh, at least persecuted mm-hmm. off and on to mm-hmm. various degrees. So they weren't texting one another. How do we get this right? <laughs> you know, and so you've got you, Ebionism clearly in the early uh, second century, probably uh, really late first century, yeah. and Docetism already. John is writing his epistles. What we've seen, heard, touched. This is what we declare to you. And uh, how do you test the spirits? Did, did, did the Son, Jesus Christ, come in the flesh? Mm-hmm. So already you see kind of a prescient Gnosticism, a beginning of Gnosticism mm-hmm. or Docetism enter in. Yeah. So those are first, late first and second century, and really they, they scatter out a little bit, but mm-hmm. lose momentum. Adoptionism more toward the end of the second century and into the third century, mm-hmm. and a lot of other uh, ideas about who is this Jesus as well. Yeah. What's really important is to know that one of the main rails for orthodoxy to, to define who is God was that baptismal formula mm. in the name of the Father, mm-hmm. Son, and Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. They didn't understand it all. Their experience was clearly Trinitarian right from the outset, right. but they didn't have the categories to explain it. So already by the late 2nd century Athanagoras, Theophilus, and a little bit later with Irenaeus, you have the language Trino, Trina. They're mm-hmm. talking about three in one mm-hmm. in some way. Really, Tertullian around 200 said, no, God is as Trinity, uh, one substance, three persons. So yeah. we're not talking about a later invention. Yeah. We're trying to put it together. Yeah, and I think what's fascinating to me, talking about the baptismal formula in Matthew 28, is one, there's no textual variant there. It's not like there's something that was, oh, this was added later, you know, hundreds of years later after Nicaea or something like that. So we have a witness of the gospel that goes back to the the actual historical event itself. You can trace it back in various ways. So there's really no there's really no reason that would cause us to doubt the authenticity, at least of what Matthew was writing. We know that he wrote that. And then talking about Paul's letters that he wrote early on and the book of James, which was written very early on, divinity was not it was almost something that Paul and the writers of the New Testament were assuming. 
it wasn't it wasn't like they were writing a treatise to establish divinity. They were just reporting that that's the way it is. Exactly. And uh, I think that's a really fascinating deal when people start to think about, hey, how was was Christianity? And we'll get to this question in a minute. Was Christianity just one of these many competing idea belief systems that just happened to like went out because one guy, this Irenaeus guy, ha- people happened to read his writings. Well, that's what I'm saying. There's kind of a forest growing up. Right. Those who qualify in the broad sense for orthodoxy. One thing that's surprising, I, this has been one of my areas of research. How many times does the New Testament bring Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together? Mm-hmm. That is God, Christ. You can use a lot of spirit terms. Uh, at least 130 times. Wow. One, you know, you're reading the scriptures and you don't think about it because mm-hmm. we're so used to this language. Yeah. But it's much more dense in the scripture, mm-hmm. and we see it in the Old Testament as well. Isaiah 63 and other places are, mm-hmm. are amazing, where God is called Father, and then Savior, and Redeemer, and then Holy Spirit twice, who wow. grieves over Israel. There's a lot more there than meets the eye. Yeah, one of the popular critiques is, you know, Trinity's not, you never find it in the Bible. And it's actually like, yeah, you do. Yeah. <laughs> a lot, We're actually. wrapped up in that specific word when the reality is, like, passage after passage is Trinity. They didn't need the word. Mm-hmm. It's written all over the pages. Yeah, totally. And we do the same thing today. We create terms and definitions to help Good. us describe what we already know to be true. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's important to note what you noted a second ago, Dr. Rell, was they're trying to get language to put on this. It's not like the, that language necessarily existed already. And so there's descriptors, in, in, but the category was something that was like, okay, we're trying to describe this that's been revealed to us through through Jesus, the Messiah. Yeah. And so you see that as well, is, is uh, the, the language develops over time in, in regard to this. So um, you have Ebionism, Docetism, Adoptionism. What, what's another one that was out there? Well, one is called modalism, at least that's what we call it today. That's where they wanted to protect the oneness of God, but they wanted to also recognize that, well, you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So modalism had more than one form, but essentially said God's one person, but he manifests himself in different ways mm-hmm. or puts on masks in different ways. Yeah. And so he shows up as the Father, like in the Old Testament a lot, or certainly as Jesus talks about him, and then the Son, and especially in the epistles, that, that God, one God, becomes the Holy Spirit. And so others were saying, no, you've got too many dynamics going on. You've got the Son praying all night to the Father. Mm-hmm. Who's he praying to? Who's he talking to on the cross? Mm. What happens when he dies? Yep. You know, you've got, you've got all kinds of reasons to say that that's not a big enough theology. Mm. But I'm afraid a lot today, one, the Pentecostals, Jesus only, and some others mm. uh, still affirm that kind of theology in kind of a simplistic way. It's like, mathematics or something. Yeah, the Father became the Son, who became the Spirit, yeah. and there's one God. Yeah. Well, yeah. what problem are they trying to solve with that? Well, the oneness of God, and they want to keep it, again, mathematically clean. One God, but just three different yeah. ways. One means one. One means one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what they're trying to, yeah. So the last one, which will launch us into the, the councils, but there was a guy, an early, was Arius a bishop? He was a presbyter a, a in Alexandria. That's right, yeah. yeah. So tell, tell us about Arius. Well, Arius uh, affirmed that the Son is the first created being through whom God created everything else. So, of course, he reflects the character of God, but he's a second God. He's not really God. And the Bishop of Alexandria was really Alexander of Alexandria. I mm. love these names. <laughs> and his uh, younger, younger, uh, 
I suppose, protege, Athanasius, mm. that said, no, that's not right. Mm. That is exactly not right. And that became, as Constantine was coming into power all over the Roman Empire, that became an issue that was dividing the church. Mm -hmm. Because Arius didn't stick around Alexandria. He headed to, uh, to Jerusalem, Caesarea, and yeah. other places as well. I'm going to go preach over here. Yeah. And so yeah. it's, it's easy to think that kind of theology, if you take very literally, that, that this is the Son of God, as though God has an offspring. Right. And quite the contrary, Athanasius and others were arguing, no, that's not right. So Arius basically held then position rejected by the church, but what is parallel, at least in this respect, to Jehovah's Witnesses mm -hmm. and others today, that Jesus is a God, a kind of second God, but not not of the same substance, not equal to God the Father. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so walk us from the controversy with Arius to the first ecumenical council. Where, where was that? What was it about? Kind of all that stuff. Yeah, good question. Uh, Constantine was uh, became emperor in the West uh, and conquered Rome and then finally into Constantinople, which is Istanbul today. So around 324, he had total power. But during that, he had had a vision by the sign you'll conquer, and that was the sign of the cross. And there seems to be some kind of a conversion in his life. Mm -hmm. And and with his edict, even in the West of Milan, uh he made Christianity no longer an illegal uh, religion. And in fact, Christians could rest on Sunday, the Lord's Day. Well, he was concerned. Probably had Osius, a, a Spanish bishop, with him for all of this. He was concerned about the division in the church, and he wanted to bring unity. So he called a council in 325 at Nicaea, which is about 40 miles from Constantinople, or mm -hmm. Istanbul. Mm -hmm. And there... We don't know for sure, but around 300 probably came together, leaders of the church, to debate this very subject. Is the sun a creation? Yeah, so the Edict of Milan, uh, the way sometimes I'll, I'll describe it to people is, hey, picture picture a lot of persecution, a lot of suppression, a lot of these conversations being had more uh, behind doors, not out in the open. And then all of a sudden, the Edict of Milan just lifts that. There's not at least a... Uh, systematic persecution by governing authorities. And so for the first time, really now all these people who have been having these conversations, but again, it's not like it's not the 21st century. They're not texting each other, you know, are now able to come together and talk about this. For so the first time, for the first yes. time ever wow. in 300 years ish. So tell us what happened. Well, the, the, the council affirmed the one substance of God in the sun as well, uh, the same as the Father. Mm -hmm. And they kind of added at the end, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. Yeah. That part wasn't filled in very well. Yeah, and, right. And to be honest, <laughs> and to be honest, it got messy after that. Yeah. Arius, uh, who was exiled at that point, crept back into the kingdom, mm -hmm. and uh, within a year had persuaded Constantine of his views. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sort of like, never listen to your emperors <laughs> to tell you what to believe. Yeah, and right. And it took a few decades for the church to figure that out. Yeah. But by the 360s, they were saying, why are we listening to, to emperors tell us what to believe? Mm -hmm. Let's go back to the scriptures. Yeah. And so, so they went deeper and deeper with the so-called Cappadocian fathers, mm -hmm. yeah, 360, 370, 380, Hillary in the West and others. Uh, both East and West are rising up and saying, no, Trinity is right. There are three persons, one substance. Mm. And beyond that, uh, 381, you've got the Council of Constantinople, right. where we believe in the one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. 
We believe in the one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, mm. God from God, light from light, very God from very God, begotten, not made of one substance with the Father. Mm -hmm. Through him all things were made. Yeah. So That's that one theology. Oh yeah. But that one substance is the phrase against Arius. Oh absolutely. Right? Yeah. yeah. Oh much more to the eternal begottenness and yeah. and of one being with the Father. Yeah. yeah. So that is the you know, the homoousios. So the creed that was refined in Constantinople, is that what we call the Nicene Creed today? Yes, yeah. Oh unanimously. That is what we call the Nicene Creed today. Even though technically it is the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, but that's what guides us. So it began in Nicaea in 325, but then over the next Locked 50 in. years or so was well, yeah, and a lot more was. And and the Cappadocians have often been considered the theologians of the Holy Spirit, mm. having determined who is Jesus Christ as the eternal Son of God or God the Son. Mm -hmm. Then, well, who is the Holy Spirit who mirrors all of this as well? Mm. And so this, uh, we believe in the Holy Spirit. The Lord, the giver of life, who is worshipped together with the Father and the Son. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. So if we if we zoom there. out a little bit, because we've gotten a little yeah. further in the weeds. So we're, <laughs> we're meeting at this council in 325. It's been a few hundred years since Christ. And we're starting to ask questions like, is Jesus human? Is Jesus divine? How long has Jesus been around? Is Jesus eternal? So that is the question that we're starting to establish with phrases like very God of very God, begotten, not made. So we're answering those questions. We move, what, 50 years, you said, and we start to answer the question of who is the Holy Spirit and how does he factor into this? The Holy Spirit had always been in the mix, of course. And there were those way back in the second century, like the Montanists leading into the third century, who, who believed Montanus was the new kind of almost incarnation of the Holy Spirit, or at least uh Many of what we see today with the tongues and prophecy and giving all your goods and things like that were, were back then. They were calling everybody else unspiritual, so they didn't become very popular. But that died off with time. But largely the Holy Spirit as a doctrine was not well developed. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sitting in my office listening to this. Why do I care about this creed? Oh, well, this creed is really the cornerstone of all historic Christianity. This mm -hmm. unites us all, mm -hmm. from the Church of India to the Ethiopian Coptic Church, Egyptian, all the orthodoxies of the East, which are not the same as Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, the Greek, Russian, and you know the, the, the 11 or 12 that come together around that, and Roman Catholicism, and all classical Protestantism, really all evangelicalism, excepting the ones Pentecostal. So, this is the foundational cornerstone theologically of the church. Mm -hmm. Jesus really is God, so he's big enough in his death on the cross, being our substitute as our human being, and yet being God, his death has infinite value for all who believe. Yeah. I think, too, there's a, a just from an apologetic standpoint, I mean, I think there's a common feel, and it's sometimes the way we talk about this, you were used the word established a, a second ago, and sometimes I think we can be tighter in our language because sometimes the language we use opens up things for critics to be like, see, you established that Jesus was God, or you determined that Jesus was God. And a lot of times the skeptics that I interact with don't have a good sense of the history of the development of this doctrine. And so they literally believe some people were just making this stuff up. And at Nicaea, they then established or determined or 
and then mm-hmm. and then Jesus became God in the same vein of Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code, right? Yeah. So, um, talk to us about what would you say a good response is to that claim that the early Christians just made all this stuff up? You go back to the scriptures themselves. You have these high Christologies. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Mm-hmm. And we get all the prologue of John is just astonishing. Oh yeah, everything was created through this one. But that's not the only one. This one who became flesh dwelt among us and all of that. The only begotten God at the Father's side who makes him known. These are extraordinary high Christologies. Colossians 1, that this this one who is the firstborn, a legal term, the heir of all things, created everything, Mm -hmm. visible, invisible, principalities, powers, everything. He not only created, he sustains. Mm -hmm. Hebrews 1 says the same thing. Hebrews 1, 3. So you have these astonishing statements in the scriptures which again, generally, the biblical authors aren't trying to argue. Mm-hmm. This is revelation from God already accepted by yeah, the church. Yeah. So these things are guiding, as you have the baptismal formula as well, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These are guiding the church to say, well, no, Jesus can't be a second God or, or creation. This Son is eternally with the Father. But how does that work between the two? They were working it out, and uh, I think nailed it so beautifully. This they didn't get everything right, but boy, on this one, it's yeah, so you, wonderful. You, yeah, you see this stream of orthodoxy that really, I mean, I think we have a lot of evidence that points it all the way back to the one man, Jesus. Yes. And so the way I describe it is, picture that stream of orthodoxy and there's little uh, a tributary or something that like branches off of it and tries to maybe establish a new way, but dies off. And then tries to establish a new way, but dies off. And yet the whole time you have this stream of orthodoxy with these various heresies that branch off of it. Um, and some of them, like you said, are still alive and well today and through various names and just new packaging. But that orthodoxy has always been there. And so the way I like to describe it is Nicaea and, and Constantinople was far less a determining event it was much more of a discovering that this is what we've believed all along. And sometimes that helps when you're interacting with people on this issue to be truer to history. Yeah, and even groping for the right language mm. to express what is really right, there in the scriptures right, right. to begin with. Yep. They're finding the words to what they already knew to be true. Right, right. And experienced, yes. So I know you mentioned it a second ago, but what did the issue of authority have to, to do with this? Because um, we know the Gospels were circulating, the Epistles were circulating. What were people looking to in order to wrestle with this language? Well, already in the New Testament, you have Apollos, you have Paul, others argue in the synagogue all the time that Jesus really is the Christ, the Son of God. So you've got, you've got that going on from the Old Testament, but then you have the writings of the New Testament mm-hmm. that are increasingly being circulated. So you have the scriptures and our canon today, that is the 27 books of the New Testament, was largely functionally in place by around 200. Hmm. But at the same time, you had the apostolic tradition. You had John's tradition, Paul's tradition, the Petrine or Peter's tradition. You had those who were faithful to what was taught also. Hmm. So you have both of those, the apostolic authority and tradition and the scriptures themselves. Scriptures increasingly took priorities. We get to Nicaea Hmm. and Constantinople, Hmm. though the apostolic tradition is very important as well. So what's the so what? We're talking about stuff that happened. 1700 years ago you know what in the world why to me this is the most precious doctrine and that's why it is really the center of everything the center of 
Christian faith. Uh, there was a time, a good time, I was even a pastor, young, but a doubter of this doctrine. And, uh, well, a personal story. I was, I was in Switzerland at a place called Lubbery with Francis Schaeffer mm-hmm. and, uh, and began to kind of go down in a black hole mm-hmm. of a more philosophic depression than a, an emotional one. That is, who am I as a human being? Who am I as Scott? Where do I go? I, I, I was studying quite a lot of European philosophy at that time. Who am I and what is human? Then a friend said, hey, you need to be looking up. You don't find answers within. Mm-hmm. Look up. And that, that was beautiful. And mm-hmm. I thought, well, let's get this straight. I want to understand the doctrine of the Trinity. So dug into scriptures myself, reading other things too. And all of a sudden, wow, the Son really is God as the Father is God. And then the Spirit. And, and it became a transformative thing in my life. And now as I look back, when you want to know what somebody believes about their religion, I think the most fundamental question you can ask is, what is your God like mm. before and outside of anything else? Is Allah big enough to be God? Is Krishna or Brahman or, or whatever else you want to call, is that adequate for the one who sustains the universe? Mm. And when you look at Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each loving, honoring, glorifying each the other, there is a beautiful, beautiful mm. backdrop to all creation. He didn't have to create to have somebody to glorify him. Uh, he created out of grace to invite us to enter in. Mm-hmm. But it's by understanding God as truly personal. The Father thinks, the Son thinks, the Spirit thinks. That's why I have a mind and yeah. can articulate in language. Yeah, the Father wills, the Son wills, the Spirit wills. Each shows affections or what we call emotions. Each gives themselves to the other. Each indwells the other. There's a key to mm-hmm. my anthropology, I'm indwelled by God, mm. similar, not the same, mm. as to how each member of the Godhead indwells the other. I'm in the Father, the Father's in me, the Spirit is in the Son, and the, the Son blows on the disciples and said, receive the Spirit, that mm. kind of thing. So, there, it unlocks what I am as a human being. It unlocks personhood in the deepest of ways. I think Karl Barth said, we don't understand who we are by looking within, but it's by looking up that we are defined as persons. I'm sure he wasn't the first, and he won't be the last that yeah. says that. But that sets me free. And then, then my own salvation. Is God big enough to be Savior of the world? What is grace? What happened at the cross? And I said it earlier, but again, if Jesus Christ is both God and man, his death on the cross has infinite value for all who believe. And the Spirit leads us right into that gives us understanding. Brian, that's a little bit fuller picture of someone who's made in the image of God. That's so good. Well, I'm going to tie us up with a passage that as I've thought about this, I've, I've thought about it a lot uh, on a project that I'm working on. And I feel like I'm just scratching the surface, which I feel like is probably a reality for all of us um, when you approach the <laughs> when you approach God. But this is Jesus's prayer at the end of John 17. Just out of his mouth, a lot of what you were just talking about. But Jesus prays to his Father. And he says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Right? He's praying for us, yes. um, which is really cool. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Again, the mutual indwelling. May they also be in us 
so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you've sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known, in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. What in the world? <laughs> I mean, I, it's so, it, oh, it's so crazy. I mean, like seriously, God the Father in the Son, and the Father and the Son in us by the Spirit. And I think that that's the mystery and the beauty of Christianity is that God is not something that we have to parse and put into Trinitarian language and then leave him over there. God is is Trinity that we enter into. Yes. Like we enter into the divine life by the spirit, through the son, into the intimacy with the father. And, and I just want to just encourage our audience. I don't know where you are today. You may have been listening to this and who knows what's going on with you right now, but I am telling you that the father has loved you and the son died for you and the spirit, if you have given your life to Jesus by grace through faith and dwells in you. And just know that, that, that God is not someone just to be thought about, but someone to be experienced as we have been brought into the divine life. Man, that was good. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Harrell. You've been a blessing um, to me, to everybody in this room, to uh, countless others um, all over the world as you've given your life and service to the King. And so I'm grateful for your ministry and, and for your time with us today. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Scott Harrell. If you like what you heard, then subscribe and tell your friends about it. And if you have any questions, which you probably do because we just talked about the Trinity, then you should email us at equippingpodcast at watermark.org. Peace. Bye.